All right. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good, good, good. Good to hear. All right, so many of you might know this about me, but um, I'm originally from the East Coast, and I actually grew up in the greatest state of America, and that is New Jersey. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? I'm serious. All right, I might want to be one of the only few people that, that's proud to be a Jersey boy. But uh, one of the coolest perks uh, of living in New Jersey is being able to have access to one of the coolest cities in the world. And I really do believe this one, though, and, and that's the Big Apple, New York City, okay? And so because I live so close to New York City, I had access to all of the, the cool arts uh, that, that were available that New York City has, has available to us. And, and that was mostly through the, the area of Broadway, okay? I'm generally not a musical kind of person, but I think I've watched more than the average guy is allowed to watch. Um, in the course of maybe six years, I watched probably about 12 to 15 musicals, okay? That's a lot. That's, that's a good amount. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I do think musicals are pretty cool, but I'm not the one that's fanat like fanatical about them. Actually, my wife, Ashley, she really does love musicals, and it makes her happy. And so I knew back then uh, as, a, as a boyfriend and then as a husband that if this makes her happy, then I'll, I'll be, be more than willing to attend a musical. And so we watched a good amount during those, those years. And unfortunately, after moving here to the Pacific Northwest, I haven't been able to watch any of the recent musicals that had come out and, and whatnot. But if you were to ask me what my favorite musical would be, I would probably say Wicked. Any of you guys seen Wicked? Any of you? Okay, good amount of you. I thought it was just a, it was a good story and everything. But probably the one that's recognized the most, or the, probably the one, the one musical that most people at least have seen or heard about is probably the musical Les Mis, right? Uh, the interesting about Les Mis is I actually never watched it on Broadway. I actually watched it in a city that most people would say is actually even better than, than New York City, and that was actually London. And so I got to watch it in London, but it was during my college years, but I watched it, but I slept through the whole thing, okay? <laughs> and, and I have an excuse, okay? I, I had flown into London that same day, and then that first thing that we did was actually watch this musical. So I was so jet-lagged and tired. So right when the, from the opening scene, I just fell asleep. And then I woke up, and it was like, oh, the musical's done. And that's like a good, like, three hours that I just fell asleep. But so I didn't get to watch it. I didn't remember it, but everyone talks about how, oh, Lame is is so awesome, so awesome. And so when it came out on a movie a few years back, I made sure to watch it so I can get to know the story. And most of you maybe have seen that, that movie. But there's, there's awesome, powerful scenes within this story. It's a powerful story in and of itself. But probably one of the most powerful scenes actually comes in the very beginning stage of the story. And it introduces the main character, Jean Valjean. And, and don't worry, I'm not going to ruin the, the movie or the musical if you haven't seen it. This is literally like the first 10 minutes of it. But we get introduced to this, this main character. His name is Jean Valjean. And he's serving his time in prison. He's in prison because he got caught stealing bread for his sister's children. And so because of that offense, he ends up getting about five years for, for stealing. Then he keeps trying to get out of prison, and he gets caught all the time. I don't know, he's, he's pretty bad at this whole prison break thing. And he ends up getting an additional 14 years of prison. So he ends up serving 19 years in prison. Finally, he gets released out of prison, and he's out of jail, and he has this criminal history. And so he's required to carry around this yellow passport. This yellow passport that says he's a former convict. And so because of that, he can't find a job. 
And so he has no place to, to get work, and in places where he goes, they, 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 they label him as a convict, and so they don't, they don't allow him to, to work there or stay wherever they, they might be. And so he ends up becoming homeless. And he starts getting really angry and very bitter of his circumstances. But in, in compassion, a local priest opens up a church so that Jean Valjean could have a warm meal and a place to stay. But Jean Valjean reverts back to his, his bitter ways. And during the night, he goes and he steals the, the church's silverware. Okay. And, and he runs off and he goes away. He ends up, it's not too long before he ends up getting caught by the police. And the police see him and they, and they find out that he has all this silverware. And so they realize that this was the church's silverware. So they go back to the church to, to get a, a confession out of Jean Valjean to say that he had stolen it from this place. And when he gets back to the church and the, the, the priest is there, the priest does something that's super gracious, an amazing act of grace. Instead of condemning Jean Valjean for stealing it, he goes and he, and he, goes and he sees Jean Valjean and instead he says, oh, you left without taking the silver candlesticks. You left too soon. And so he goes and he brings the silver candlesticks and he gives it to Jean Valjean. And the police are like, wait, so he didn't steal the silver well? And the, and the priest is like, no, I, I gave it to him. Right? And so then the police are left to, you know, just let him go, and then they move on. And Jean Valjean, he's like, he reacts to this. He's like, why would this priest do this? Why would he give me this act of grace? And after that, he realizes that he needs to make a change in his life. He looks at his life and he sees, oh, I have all this bitterness and anger and hatred but because of this act of grace that I received, I need to do something about it. And so he goes forward from that day on, wanting to change his life, being, being transformed from that act. See, the power of the gospel confronts us, compels us to make an active decision of whether it will transform your entire life or whether you will remain the same. Jean Valjean, he could have stayed the same. He could have received that grace and, and just said, you know what, that was, I got a good break, and so I can move on and just be exactly the same as I want. But he decides to do something different. He responds to that act of grace, and he allows it to transform his life. I think the same thing happens with us when we are confronted with the gospel. The gospel is this, that while we were still sinners, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross on our behalf. And that God lavishes his love and his compassion upon our lives, even before we're able to express any kind of gratitude or response. But after we receive this goodness, this grace, it requires a response for us. And the response is, do we allow God to transform our lives? Or do we disregard it and say, you know, I want to stay exactly the same? But the gospel demands a response. And as followers of Christ, we're called to live our lives for Jesus and to surrender our plans for God's purposes and become the best stewards of whatever God has blessed us with. You know, the last several weeks, we've been in the message series called uh, A Life Well Invested, where we talked about how we could be the best stewards of, of our, our treasures, of our, our money, our finances, our time. Today, we're going to look at how we invest our gifts and our talents, and our abilities into building God's kingdom. See, for most of us, God's gifted us uh, with just tremendous ability, tremendous talents. But only a handful of us could probably say that we use 
all of our abilities to, to serve in the church, maybe in some kind of way uh, of like vocational ministry, like, like being a pastor or, or a missionary. There's probably only a few of us on staff. There's maybe a, only a handful here that could say that they use their gifts just for ministry purposes. But for the most of us here, right, right in this room, we probably use the majority of our talents uh, and, and our abilities in the workplace or in school. And then part of our talents are used to probably serve uh, in the church, you know, through maybe volunteering in different ministries here at church. But a lot of us have this misconception. We have this understanding that serving in the church is more important than working at our jobs, right? And I think I want to clear that up because that's really a, a, a bad misconception. We often try to separate our faith with our work. We say the things that we do at work are, are the secular, and the things that we do at church are, are the sacred. And we say these are two, two different things, and often it's the sacred that's more important. But I think the real understanding should be that these things aren't mutually exclusive, but they're actually things that they're really integrated with one another. And so we're going to look at these three passages that explain to us how we should treat our giftings and abilities, and we use them, whether it be in your workplace or wherever you're called to, to build God's kingdom. And so the first passage I wanted to look at is from the Old Testament. It's in Exodus 31. And you can turn with me on your apps or your phone app, or you can look up on the Bible, or you can just look up on screen. But it's a, it's a short passage in Exodus 31. It's about a man named Bezalel. Let me just read it for us really quickly. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to gauge in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahesamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. This is the word of God. At first glance, th this, this passage seems a little bit random, kind of obscure. But this is actually one of the first instances in which God fills someone with the Spirit of God, giving them this creative power and energy in achieving the work of God. In, in other areas of the Old Testament, God pours down the Holy Spirit on certain people, and, and He gives them a certain skill, or He gives them a certain ability. Oftentimes, He gives them maybe a, a divine strength. A lot of times it's actually a prophetic word. But in this instance, God pours down his spirit on Bezalel with creative power and skill. The background of this passage is that the Israelites have just escaped from the hands of the Egyptians. You know, they were freed from slavery and, and oppression. And now as the Israelites are journeying to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai where God gives um, them a new identity and he gives them a new covenant of who they are as the people of God, God also gives them instructions of building a tabernacle in which God promises that his presence will be with them. And so as they're, they're traveling around the wilderness, this is when God speaks again to Moses, and he tells Moses that he's going to empower this man, Bezalel, specifically to do work, and to work, and to do work that glorifies God. See, God says in the passage that he has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, as the person who will be filled with the Spirit of God and the ability to make artwork through the raw materials of gold, bronze, right, silver, wood, and stone, right? 
in this short passage, God is reaffirming this theological truth that God sees work as a sacred activity, right? But also, not, not only that, we realize this first truth, that when we invest our talents and our abilities, it's a way in which we worship God. Okay? Our work is a form of worship to God. God shows His people that He delights when we work for Him and for His glory. That we're called to use the very gifts and abilities that we have that God's given us and use them to work at our jobs. To, to, do, to, to, to glorify Him through the way in which we study at, at our school. And, and all of this, it's so that we can create beauty out of the chaos of the world. God says in the passage that He is the one that has given the abilities to these skilled workers and again, it shows how God delights in the creative work that is created by his people. And so this short passage reveals to us that God enjoys and delights when we work with our talents and the abilities and the gifts that we are given because they are a form of worship to him. If God delights in what you do and how you work, how should that affect the way that you work? You know, what does it look like for you when you do go to work? When you go to work tomorrow, do you give it your best? Or do you just, you know, try to coast on by? You know, just try to make it through the week? Do what the bare minimum of what you need to do so you can just get through. If we see work to be part of our worship to God, uh, to bring glory to God's name, then when we go to work, we should go 100%. We should do the best that we can so that we can showcase God's excellence, God's beauty, God's awesomeness in the way in which we work. Before I went to seminary, I actually worked for one year as a financial analyst uh, with Time and Life magazine. Um, I regrettably only worked for one year. I should have worked probably a little longer. My wife kind of yells at me for that. But... Um, I worked for just one year, and I worked primarily with Life Magazine. Do you guys know what Life Magazine is? Okay, it, it, back in the day, it was this really, really historic brand. Uh, but when I was working there, they were trying to make a comeback. And so they are trying to make a comeback from this, you know, historic brand and making it into, like, this weekend, you know, weekend magazine. And they were trying to target these young, young families. Unfortunately, the attempt was very short-lived, and the comeback only lasted about two years, and then they said, you know, forget it. We're going to get rid of Life Magazine. But in that year, I, I worked for Life Magazine, and, and my mo main motivation in all of that was just to get a paycheck. I was just trying to there, I was just working there to just get that paycheck and, and just save enough money to, to pay back some of my college loans and then save up enough money so I can buy an engagement ring for my then-girlfriend, soon-to-be wife. But I remember in the very beginning stages of me working there, I, I, I didn't give it my all. I figured, because I knew that this was just going to be a short stint, a temporary thing, and I was going to go to seminary soon after, that I, I went and I just kind of coasted. I tried to do the very bare minimum of what I was doing. Right? And then as I got to know some of my coworkers, I was getting to know them better and, and talking more with my boss and everything, they ended up finding out that I was very passionate about my faith. 
they ended up finding out that, that I, I went to church pretty often, right? And so they knew that I was a devout Christian. And so, you know, anytime that we would talk, you know, and my coworkers were like cursed in the middle of the conversation, they go, oh, oh, sorry, I'm so sorry, right? I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. Or other times they, they'd come to me and be like, hey, I know you're a, a big Christian and all. Do you think you could, you know, say a good word for, for the big man upstairs, right? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, sure, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And I, and I just, and so, you know, as I realized, as I continued going to this work and getting to know most of my coworkers, I started feeling convicted. As I started feeling convicted because I was thinking, what, how does my quality of work, how does that reflect upon God? The fact that I was just kind of coasting through it, right, and doing the bare minimum, what, what does that say about the God that I serve? And so I remember feeling really challenged about it. And so I said, you know what? I really need to step up my game. I need to be better at this. And so I remember going to work and I, I realized I needed to do the best that I could. And so I ended up staying late, later than I usually would wait. I mean, stay there. I would work a lot harder. I would make sure that I did above and beyond what it was, was called of me to do so that I would make it, you know, my coworkers, their lives easier by doing the, the best that I could. And I realized that if I wanted to be a witness for God, it was the way in which I worked, the way in which I, I did my work. And I wanted to do an excellent, excellent job. Right? Because when people could see the way that they work, then they would be pointed to an amazing God that I serve. And so I felt like I, I needed to do that. And we work hard not so that we could impress our coworkers, not so that we can impress our boss for our promotion or something like that. But we work hard because we realize our work is a form of worship and we want to give our very best. My second daughter, Alexis, is now about 19 months old now. And it's just crazy to, to see and experience like just how fast kids grow up. Um, and so, you know, she, she's She's been walking. She's actually started walking about a few months ago, and it was kind of late for, for her. But you know, I remember when she first started taking the first few steps, she looked like this drunk kid. Like, she's like, right? You couldn't really do it, right? And then, and then now she's gotten so much better in the last few months. But one interesting thing about my daughter, and actually my daughters, you know, plural, is that, um, actually, they don't get this from me. I, I'm pretty sure of it, but they, they love to dance. Okay, they, they love dancing. Anytime music is played, right, they'll start like dancing, running around and like running in circles and dancing, waving their arms and stuff. My oldest daughter, whenever we watch like So You Think You Can Dance and they're like some like slow music comes on, she does like these contemporary moves and she's like doing, and I'm like, she definitely did not get that from me. Like I, I, I'm, I do not, I'm the person that does not dance like at, at weddings or anything. I just don't dance. But they, they love to dance. And my youngest daughter, Alexis, she just loves dancing. And so even with, when no one's watching her, she'll be like in the room and she'll be dancing by herself. She'll like wave her arms, she'll, she'll bob up and down, she'll go in circles, right? And she loves dancing. And then maybe I might catch her dancing and so I, I might go up and I, I might see her. And so she, she notices that I'm, that I'm watching her. So she goes and she walks over to me and she tugs out my hand. She tugs at my hand to, to kind of follow her. So I go and I follow her and I walk back to where she was originally dancing. And she just makes me come follow her. And then there in that room, she starts pulling out all her dance moves, right? She's dancing, she's bobbing up and down, she's waving her hands, right? And, and she's, just, she's just laughing because she sees me watching her, right? And I notice that I, I'm just, you know, beaming from ear to ear, right? Smiling, 
looking on with delight as, as my daughter is dancing. And then after a while, my daughter comes up to me and she, she opens up her hands, her arms, and she goes, Appa, right? which is daddy in Korean. Right? And I know that that's my then cue to go and, and pick her up. Right? And I pick her up and then I start dancing with her. I spin her up in, in the air and I'm, I'm holding her. And as I'm doing that, she's squealing with delight. Right? She's, like, she's having a blast. And at the same time, I'm smiling and I'm, I'm having you know, all this joy as I'm dancing with my daughter. And I thought about that picture and I realized that's actually the picture in which God sees us. God sees you when you are doing your best at your job. When you are doing the best at wherever God's called you, God looks with delight as he watches you, as he sees you do what you were created to do. And not only that, the awesome promise is that when we can go and surrender our wills to the Father, to our Heavenly Father, and we say, Abba, Father, we open up our arms, our Heavenly Father can pick us up to heights and, and levels that we could never have accomplished on our own. That's a beautiful picture of the way in which God delights when we go and work our best and we work towards excellence so that we could worship our God. That's the picture that we're left with. And that's the first truth that we have to learn and understand when we invest our talents for God's kingdom, it's a form of worship. Here's the second thing that that we need to understand. We need to see that when we invest our talents and our gifts, right, it's a form of living out the mission that God's called us to. We need to see our work, wherever you work, and whatever job you have, as a place of missions to share and witness about the gospel of Jesus. Jesus gave a teaching to his disciples about how they were to act in, and, and to live in the world. And so he said he, he called them to, to shine forth the light be lights into the world. And not only that, he calls them, he says, you are to be salt of the earth, salt of the world to the people. Look with me to Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. And you can just look up on here. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this passage is taken as a challenge, a challenge that he, Jesus delivers to his disciples. And he gives them an additional mission of becoming salt and light in the world. And he explains to his followers that he wants them to be salt of the earth. And the reason why Jesus challenges us to be salt of the earth is not so that we would, you know, bring extra flavor to our world. Like, we'll make things interesting by the way we act. No, no. The the main reason why, why he's talking about this is he's saying that he's calling us to be People that decay, slow down decay. In the ancient Middle Eastern times, the main function of salt was not that it would add, you know, taste to the food. You, you didn't sprinkle a little bit of salt so that it would taste better or anything. But the main reason for salt was that it served as a preservative. 
It served as a preservative to help foods last longer than they naturally would. And so they would use the salt so that it would make it, you know, slow down the normal process of decay and allow it to last longer. In the same way, God uses that analogy with us. He's saying, you are called to be salt of the earth so that you would be a person that slows down decay. That you would be this counteracting agent against maybe, you know, injustices that are happening. Maybe unethical behavior that's around you. That you would be that counteracting agent in your culture to stand up against these different things. And the other part of this passage is that Jesus also calls us to be light of the world. That we're called to be light in the darkness, shining forth the love of Christ to those around us. And this is a metaphor of being light, you know, serving as this positive influence to, to the world and to our society. As light of the world, we're called to illuminate the love of Jesus. And the passage says that our light shines before others in, in the way, in, in our deeds, so that others may come to know and understand the glory and love of the Father. We live out this idea of being light in the world when we act kindly, when we act compassionately to those around us, whether it be your coworkers or your colleagues. When we offer grace and we offer love to those in our workplaces. Right? You might think that this passage is challenging us to become like these fearless evangelists, like Billy Graham or something, right? And that we would, you know, preach the gospel in the way that we talk. And there's a certain element of that, that we do need to, to, to do that. But I think the main emphasis in all of this is that we would be able to, to live out what it means to be salt and light in the way in which we act. There's a popular saying that we've often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And the statement goes like this, preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. And really that's a sentiment uh, of the challenge that Jesus is giving us as salt and light. That we would showcase God's love in the way in which we act. And we would preach the gospel in the way in which we act in our workplaces or wherever God's called you. But what does that look like? What does that look like for us to be salt and light in our workplaces or in our vocation? What does it look like to view our workplace as a, a missions field? I, I believe what it means for us is that we have to act in a, in a new code of ethics, a new, new values, new, new purpose. For some of us that might be in companies, work for companies or financial institutions, right, there's this overwhelming push to, to, to get that bottom line, right? to make sure that your company makes a profit. And sometimes you make decisions so that you could do that. But sometimes you... you you do things which wouldn't be ethical. Or maybe you'd push things in all these different ways in which you might be hurting other people in their jobs or, or different things that, that could come up. But there's always the, what, this push that the company needs to make a profit, and so you try to do everything that you can to do that. Other people, it's a, you, know, you might just be in your job, and, and you're, there's this push to, to climb the corporate ladder. And there's a sentiment, you've got to do whatever you can to get up there to do your best. And so there's a sense that most people will say that it, it can get ruthless. People are willing to stab other people in the back so that they can get that promotion. But maybe for you it means I'm going to function in a new way. That I'm going to function in a way that, that shows integrity, that shows character. I think there are all these different instances in which we can function now with a new ethic, with a new purpose, so that we could be salt and light of the world. There's a story that Dr. Tim Keller 
of Redeemer Church shares about. And this Redeemer Church is a church in New York City. And he shares about a congregant who exhibited this, this crazy kind of compassion and integrity. He shares a story about seeing this young woman at his church. And she kind of looked like she was lost. She kind of looked like she, she, wasn't, she wasn't a regular tender. And so she, she kind of locked eyes with her. But before, any time, before the end of the service would you know, be over, she would rush to the back and she would leave. And so you know, Dr. Tim Keller was like, you know what, I want to make sure that I, I stop her before she leaves so I can greet her and I can welcome her. And so right after he, he finishes preaching, before she can get out of, of, the, of the room, she, he runs to the back and he stops her. And he goes, hey, hey well, I just wanted to say welcome to Redeemer. I just wanted to, to get to know you and say hi. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, hi, hi. And he's like, okay, how'd you, how'd you hear about Redeemer? How, you know, what, what made you come out here? And she goes, you know, I actually heard about it through one of, the, one of your congregants. And so she, she goes and she shares a story. She shares about how she had been working for this uh, very prestigious company, a well-known company in, in New York City. And she started working at the company, and it wasn't long before she ended up making a mistake, a huge mistake that, that cost the company a lot of money. And she knew that this mistake would actually cost her job. And so she's waiting in one of the conference rooms while her superiors are, are deliberating about what they're going to do with her. And most likely they were thinking about just firing her, letting her go. When later on they find out, what ends up happening is her boss goes into the, the conference that, that they're having and he takes complete responsibility for what she had done. And because of this act, this boss ended up losing a bit of his own reputation and all of his chances of getting that next promotion seemed to be over. And so this, this young woman hears what her boss has done and she's shocked. She's really shocked that, that her boss would do something like that. So she goes and she wants to thank her boss for what, she, what he had done. And so she goes and she meets with her boss and she, she tells, her, tells the boss that, that she had often worked for companies right, or different bosses, most often, that whenever she did something good or she did something that was really good for the company, the boss would take credit for it. Say, oh, this is all my idea or this is, right? And anytime she did something bad or she made a mistake, she would have to carry all the blame. And so she goes and she goes, you know, there's something different. Why would, why would you do that? Why would you take the blame for, or take the fall for what I had done? And, and he goes and he deflects the question. He's like, it's, it's okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And she says, no, no, why did you take the fall from me? When everyone else that, that I've seen in, in this corporate world is willing to just, you know, throw up people under the bus, why did you stick up for me? Why did you take responsibility for my mistake? And he says, um, uh, I'll tell you, um, I guess I'm a Christian. Uh, that might mean a lot of different things for people, but mainly for me, it means that God accepts me and that God, Jesus took the blame for the things that I've done wrong, and he did it on the cross. And that's why I have the desire and maybe sometimes even the ability to take the blame for others. And so she stared at him in awe. And she's like, what? That, that, I, I still can't believe this. And so after she pauses and thinks about it, she goes, so where do you go to church? And the man tells her, yeah, I, I go to this church called Redeemer in the city. And so she decides, you know what? I'm going to go check out that church, 
even though I'm not very religious, I don't believe in God, but I'll go to that church because there's something different about you. The character of this boss, the integrity that he had, the behavior, the way in which he acted showed this woman the impact of the gospel. Because of this striking contrasting character that this boss had, in comparison to others in the workplace, it became a moment of life transformation for this particular woman. This boss knew what it meant to be salt and light in the workplace, bringing glory to God through his actions and his behavior. And that's the second truth that we learn, that when we invest our talents, our abilities, wherever we are called to, that's our mission field. And that's our opportunity to be salt and light. Here's my last point. Our investment of talents is an opportunity that shouldn't be wasted or else. Sounds kind of ominous. But look with me to Matthew 25, 14 to 29. Actually, since we don't really have much time. So you can just write down Matthew 25, 14 to 20. You can look at it later. But for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to give you the, the Cliff Notes version of it. And so Jesus is giving a parable. And it, the parable goes like this, where there, there's this master who gives uh, three servants bags of gold. In other translations, it says talents, talents of gold or talents of, of something. In any case, it's a lot of money. And so one servant, he gives five bags. Another servant, he gives three bags. Another servant, he gives one bag. And the story goes is that the first servant who had five bags ends up doubling what he had, right? And the master goes and commends him, says, good job, good job, good job. The second servant who had three bags goes and he doubles his investment, right? And he ends up getting six bags. And the master says, good job, good job, good job. And then the last servant who only had one bag doesn't do anything with it. Just kind of sits on it, buries it in the ground. And then when the master comes back, he takes it out and he gives them back the one one bag of the talent of gold. And you know what the master says? The master says this, you wicked and lazy servant, and then throws him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's kind of scary stuff if you think about it. Right? God gives us our own abilities, our own talents, our own gifts, and if we decide to be lazy about it and to not do anything with it, we actually can get punished. Right? And these aren't my words. You know, my, my job is not to, to guilt you or to give you a guilt trip or something. These are straight from what Jesus has to say. Right? We often, I feel like, we, we go to church and we often go to, to God and we often say, what can you do for me? Or what have you done for me lately? Instead, I think we need to challenge ourselves to think, how can I be of service to God? And how can I be of service to the church? How can I get involved? How can I use my talents, my gifts, my abilities to build God's kingdom? See, if you've been coming out to Lighthouse for more than a year, and you are not using your gifts, your talents, and abilities in serving you're on dangerous ground. You could actually be that servant that just sits on their gifts and their abilities and their talents and doesn't do anything. 
and the master banishes them to darkness and punishment. And I really wouldn't want that for anybody to fall into that, that fate. I really don't. But that's what God says to those that sit around and do nothing and not use their talents for God's kingdom. If you're asking, okay, so then how, how can I get involved? How can I begin to serve? Well, let me tell you, and I'm going to put on my sales cap or something, my infomercial cap here, right? There's, there's, there's actually plenty of ways in which you could serve and you can be a part of what's going on here at Lighthouse. I don't know if you know this, but we really need people to begin serving on our setup and strike ministry. We have a few faithful people who are in this ministry and it's because of them that we are able to worship. If we didn't have setup and strike ministry, you know, all this stuff would not be set up. Right? And all this stuff would not be taken down so that we could have a space, an opportunity for us to worship together. Right? You, you might be saying, okay, well, I don't have, you know, the good social skills. I'm not musically talented. I, you know, I, I can't do this. I can't do that. But if you're just able to pick something up and put it down, like, you are able to be able to help out with setup and strike. Okay? We need people. How can you get involved in that way? Maybe you, you, you want to get involved in another ministry. And another ministry that you can, can get involved, involved with is the one that Pastor Trent just talked about, the children's ministry. We're, we're always looking for people who are willing to invest in the spiritual lives of our future generation. How awesome is it that you get to make an impact in, in the spiritual lives of, of our children? You get a front row seat to see God's transformation taking place in our children's lives. You know, the children's ministry is, is looking for help for this coming fall. So you can get involved that way. I know that our youth ministry site is also looking for advisors. People who are, are able to invest in the lives of our teens. And again, it's a special privilege to be able to be used by God to impact another person's life. Right? And you could do that through sight. Maybe some of you are thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not cut out to be a teacher. I'm not cut out to be a mentor. You know, I'm not, I'm not good with kids to begin with, you know. But can you hold a smile? I, I have a terrible smile. Uh, people say that I look like Chandler, Chandler Bing. So I have the Chandler smile. Only people who only know friends will, will get that joke. It, it, it's pretty true. Uh, when people say, hey, open your mouth, like, and the, or smile, it's the same thing, okay? <laughs> but maybe your gift is, is that you have a great smile. Then I think you can go ahead and, and join the hospitality team. You can be a part of the welcoming team, the ushers that greet us each and every Sunday. And so I'm going to get a little practical here. Again, if you've been coming out to Lighthouse for more than a year and you are not involved in any way or form, this is your time to get involved. This is your opportunity to get involved. And the next step that I, I'm going to challenge you is go ahead and take that Connect With Us card that's in your program and then just put down your name and your email and then on the back just put, I want to volunteer or I want to serve in this, setup and strike, children's ministry, site, hospitality, audiovisual, whatever it might be. Just write it in there and we will get back to you. We will contact you. There are so many options for us to get involved. Because we learn in this passage in Matthew, it's an opportunity that you don't want to miss out on. God gives us each of our own giftings and talents so that we get an opportunity to make an impact in God's kingdom. 
But if you miss that opportunity, you will regret it. And worse, you could get punished for it, that it says in this passage. Let me close with this story that I heard from a while back. And it really encouraged and challenged me. And it's the story of this young teenager named Johnny. Johnny was this high school student, and he recalls how, you know, it was just a normal day, typical day for him. It was about, you know, sometime in, in November or so, in the fall of, of his freshman year. And he noticed as he was kind of, you know, school was out, or school was done for the day, and he noticed this other student that was walking by him, and he was walking home. And his name, he seemed to remember that his name was probably Kyle. And it looked like this kid Kyle was carrying all of his books. He had all these books in his bag, and it was, it was you know, filled to the brim. And then he had all these, these textbooks that he was carrying. Right? And Johnny thought to himself, what is this kid doing? Like, why is he bringing all of his, his book home? You know, he must be a nerd or something. Like, what is he going to do, extra studying this, this weekend? And as he was thinking about that, you know, thinking about this kid, he starts thinking about his own weekend. He's like, oh, you know, I'm going to have so much fun this weekend. I'm going to hang out with my buddies. We're going to play some flag football. And then afterwards, we're going to go to my friend's house and we're going to, you know, play video games and just hang out and chill. And it's just going to be so much fun. And as he's thinking about this, this kid Kyle walks by him. And then he notices, you know, these bullies, these punk kids come and they surround Kyle. And then they just kind of tease him. And then afterwards, they just push Kyle down. And Kyle falls, his books go everywhere, right? And he falls to the ground. And as he's falling, his, his glasses fall off and they tumble over and they tumble over to Johnny's feet, right? Johnny bends down and he goes and he, he picks up the glasses. And as he picks up the glasses, he, he locks eyes with, with Kyle. And he notices this terrible sadness in, in Kyle's eyes. So he goes and he picks up the glasses and then he goes and he gives them up to Kyle helps him get up, picks up the books with him. And then Johnny feels this prompting to, to kind of reach out. And so he goes and he reaches out to this kid, Kyle, and goes, hey, hey um, I know your name's Kyle, um, but how come I haven't seen you from before other times? And, and then Kyle just shares, you know, he's, you know, his whole life he's been traveling around, moving from place to place, and so just recently he, he came from another state and he, he was here at, at that school. And so Johnny goes, you know what, if you're not doing anything this weekend... Well, you know, why don't you come out and hang out with me? And Kyle's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. And so Kyle goes ahead and joins Johnny for that weekend. And so he goes and he hangs out with him, plays flag football, goes and hangs out with, with Johnny's friend. And they ended up, during that course of that weekend, they realized that they had a lot of things that, 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 that were similar. And they realized that they connected in many ways. And so they thought, you know, this was, this was kind of cool. Be, they became friends through that. That very next Monday, Kyle had all his books again with him. He was carrying them all, you know, huge stack of the textbooks and whatnot. And, and Johnny comes over and he's like, yo, let me help you out with the, the books. And he, and he carries half of his books and they go back to, to school. Over the next four years, Kyle and Johnny become best friends. They're best friends with one another. They're inseparable. After those four years, Kyle ends up getting into Notre Dame University. And Johnny got into University of Michigan. And they realized that their, their paths were, were being, you know, divided in that way. But they thought, you know, our friendship is strong enough that we can still keep in touch. Finally came to graduation. And, and Kyle ended up, he was, a, he was a smart kid. He ended up being the valedictorian for his class. And so as valedictorians normally do, they, they make that, that closing speech to their graduating class. And so he goes and makes his speech. He says, 
Graduation is a time to thank those who helped you make it through these tough years. Your parents, your teachers, your siblings, maybe a coach, but mostly your friends. And I'm, and I'm here to tell you that being a friend to someone is one of the best gifts you can give to them. And I'm going to tell you of a story of a day when a friend changed my life. And in the next few minutes, Kyle revealed to the whole graduating class that there was this one day where he was planning to take his own life because he felt so lost. He felt so alone. And so he decided that he was going to clean out his locker, take all his books with him, everything that he had, and bring it home so that his mom wouldn't have to clean it out for him after he took his own life. But he shares, though, that there was this random moment in the midst of that where a fellow student saved his life. He shared a friend came into his life and saved him from doing the unspeakable. Gasps went throughout the crowd. And Johnny had no idea that that moment from a few years back was such a pivotal moment in the life of his best friend. And so Johnny, Johnny looks out into the crowd. He locks eyes with Kyle's parents. And you can tell just from the, their eyes that they were saying thank you. Johnny never realized that that small act of compassion and kindness could have such an impact in another person's life. It was an opportunity that he didn't want to miss out on. It would have been tragic if Johnny didn't do anything. He missed out on that opportunity to show kindness. It was literally a life or death situation. But for you, it may not be this life or death situation. But God still gives you an opportunity to use your talents, to use your gifts, use your abilities for the building up of God's kingdom. And it would be a shame if you missed it, if you didn't do anything about it. But God challenges us to invest our gifts, our talents, our abilities to the building of God's kingdom. Actually, God gives us the special privilege to be used for God's kingdom. We get to be part of what God's trying to accomplish in this world. We get the special privilege of being used by God wherever He's called you to, whether it be the workplace, whether it be your school, whether it be your home. And we get an awesome opportunity to be used by God. It would be a shame if you put it to waste and you missed it. My hope and challenge for you this morning is that you won't miss out. You won't miss that opportunity. But instead, you'll begin to invest your life, your talents, your gifts, your abilities for the building of God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you in knowing, God, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for out of your great love for us, to die the most excruciating and humiliating death on the cross, out of your love and your compassion for us. And when we can fully understand this act of grace, Lord, it really does confront us. It challenges us to, to make a response. And I pray, Lord, for, for those here in this room that, that our response will be 
that we would offer up our lives to you, God. Lord, that we would invest our talents, our abilities, our gifts, God, for the building of your kingdom, God. Lord, that we would come to see that when the way in which we work, the way in which we show excellence, God, is a form of worship to you. And Lord, that we have this opportunity, Lord, to go into the places you've called us, God, to be salt and light, to show others your amazing love for them. And so I pray, God, Lord, that you would help us to to get off of our seats, God, to, to not just be sitting around and just sitting on our gifts, God, but, Lord, that we would stand up, we would rise up, God, and, Lord, we would seek to use that opportunity for your glory, and we would do the best that we can in investing our talents for you and for the church. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.